believe it or not, the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast is still active. This is episode 45, just slowly creeping our way to 50 episodes in just under a million years. But this is something I want to keep going and haven't been able to keep it going as much as I would like, partially because a lot of other things started to take precedence. This year we played the most uh, most we've ever played and really have been putting a lot of gas into the live performance side of Chalk Dinosaur and trying to tour and trying to play in new places and trying to get in front of as many people as we can. So podcast kind of took a back seat um, and due to my poor time management skills, uh, it never was removed from the back burner until today because things uh, are winding down. It's the end of the year. Holidays are coming up and now's a good time for it. So first of all, today is December 19th and we just got back from a show in Philadelphia. The first time Chalk Dinosaur has ever played in Philadelphia and we had a really, really great um, opportunity to open for a band called Pigeons Playing Ping Pong, which is a very successful band in the jam music world and, um, you know, one of the leaders of this whole scene of music, people that we've been listening to for a long time and people that who, uh, who have inspired us to get involved with this scene and to make music. So it was really great getting to play with them in Philadelphia. And um, even better, uh, it was a Saturday night, and it sold out. The show was sold out, which is only the second time Chalk Dinosaurs ever played a sold-out show. Um, And it was a real privilege, and... They had the lights going for us, which is also, you know, very nice thing of them to do. A lot of times, you know, they're they're funding those lights, so whoever brought the lights, they they don't typically do them for the other bands. So that was awesome, and it sounded great in there. It was a really cool venue. It was called Brooklyn Bowl, and it was a bowling alley music venue, which the last bowling alley music venue... I played was called Hollywood Lanes in Pittsburgh and that was it was a couple lanes and it was very DIY uh, style and I played another bowling alley and it was also very DIY music was not the focus of the the place and I think most of the people there were mostly interested in bowling at this place the stage is super nice the sound system's great the the lights just like the whole aesthetics of the whole place was awesome they had speakers everywhere so no matter where you went in the building you could hear the show and and there were lanes as well and people were bowling and i bowled a few games which was actually awesome i I was standing side stage they had a few lanes they had two lanes reserved for artists um so while I was standing to the side of the stage listening to pigeons playing ping pong, um, there was just a lane there. It was just ready to go. 
you didn't have to pay money or do anything. You just pick up a ball and start bowling. So I bowled two games, and I actually bowled really well for me, for me. Usually for me, if I break 100, you know, that's that's pretty good. And I think I got 144, and then the second game I bowled a 148, which, again, for me, not having bowled in a long time, that was great. I uh, felt like I was the music was helping me uh, become one with the ball. Really, see the lanes. Feel that pendulum in my arm. Get that perfect bowling stroke. Perfect follow-through. Just kidding. But, I mean, it was actually really nice bowling with a show going on that I could bowl my ball, turn around, and look and be watching. It was super nice because the... They had like an area roped off where just for artists and crew. And um, it was really nice because it being a sold out show, there was a lot of people everywhere. So it was kind of hard to get around. Um, you didn't have a lot of space, but in that area, there was plenty of space. And you could kind of see the show and hear the show from, from close up. Um, but anyway, before I get off on a tangent too much, um, just want to say thank you to everybody who came out and listened. A lot of people came out early to see our set, and we really appreciate that. It's so nice getting to play to a room full of people, um, especially after you know some of the shows we played this year. There were, I mean, a couple. Well, let's see. One of them there were literally zero people, and then you know the other one there was there was like six people that we personally knew, and then nobody else. So it was super nice getting to play for a room full of people that were excited to hear music and open-minded to what we had to play, which was, it was me and Nick for this show. So, you know, it's a little more electronic. It's more of that electronic jam hybrid type of show, which, you know, I always am a little bit concerned when we play in front of jam band audiences, is it going to be enough instrumentation for for them to be engaged and for them to be interested um and everybody was really really nice and open-minded and i talked to so many nice people i thought i was going to lose my voice by the end of the night because um we talked to a bunch of people and some really enthusiastic like hardcore chalk dinosaur listeners which was super cool to hear um talked to somebody who Chalk Dinosaur was their number one most listened artist for the last three years. Talked to another person who had listened to every album, which is, I don't know many people who have done that. Um, very, very, very few, probably like under five people. So that, that was really cool to hear. Talked to somebody who um, actually watched the Chalk Dinosaur Twitch channel, which for a while when I was working on in 2022 in fall and 2023 in the winter and the early spring, I was working on stuck in between the album and I was live streaming my computer screen and audio. So people could tune into the chalk dinosaur Twitch channel and they could watch me work on the album in real time. Or, you know, they saved the videos for a couple days. So you could kind of just like see the process and it was cool, but there was usually, you know, five or less people watching. 
And I know one of them was John Henderson, the guitar player. He would always tune in. And then one of the other people, I met them in Philly. They would watch me work on the album. So that was really cool. And then talked to another person who said, you know, they hadn't heard us before and, and, and we were like their new favorite band. So the Philadelphia crowd was extremely nice. And more specifically, the Philadelphia Pigeons crowd was super nice. Um, because I, this is something I've noticed with other events that I've played with Pigeons playing ping pong, specifically Dome Fest. The two Dome Fests that I've played in, like, especially last year, because we were, um, we were hanging out there all weekend, and the crowd that they attract is so nice. Everybody was really, really nice and really open-minded to our music, really supportive. They bought a bunch of merch, um, and my wife, Alyssa, was working at the merch booth all night very diligently, and and um, sold a whole ton of merch for us. But anyway, so thank you to all the people of Philadelphia and huge thanks to Pigeons and Brooklyn Bull Philly. I know Pigeons, they've been at it for a very long time, building and growing this audience over, I don't know how long, 10 years about something, maybe longer. But anyway, the point is they've been working very long and hard to grow this audience and for them to give us the opportunity to share our music with that audience that they've, you know, really sweat and toiled growing. Um, we really appreciate it. And it was, it was such a luxury and such a privilege to get to play that show in that room uh, with that band because it it was uh it was just great. Another cool thing about the Philly show was that I got to sit in with Pigeons during their set. I got to play a song with them called Skinner um after the Pigeons playing ping pong Skinner guy and um Another cool thing about the Pigeons playing ping pong show on Saturday was that I got to sit in with them. Um, they asked me to sit in on a song and it was a song that I was familiar with. It's, it's a new song that hasn't been released yet, but, um, they had sent it to me and consulted me to add some sound effects and synthesizer and keyboard stuff into their, into their, um, recording. So I was already, pretty familiar with it and so it was a good choice and um that was really cool uh just to get to just to get to play with them because like i said we've been watching them and and getting you know inspiration from them and you know they've been one of the leaders of this jam scene for a long time and definitely one of the the bands that we've looked up to and have drawn inspiration and motivation from um, to to get more involved with this scene of music and to try to 
try to become, you know, relevant in this scene and, and contribute. Um, and they're, they're definitely responsible for, for, for some of the inspiration we've had over the years to pursue this. So it's very cool that I got to sit in with them and play a song in front of their audience. Um, like I said, sold out audience. That's, it's like such a novelty, uh, for, for me. And, um, to get to do it with such a seasoned band, uh, was really cool. And so thank you to them for giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, because not only is it just a cool experience for me, but it, it really does a lot to help the visibility of Chalk Dinosaur. Um, because, uh, you know, people like to see that kind of collaboration and also a lot of people, you know, they don't, they don't know Chalk Dinosaur and then they're there to see pigeons and they see the, you know, a member of Chalk Dinosaur sitting in with pigeons. And then it just, it does a lot to help. It goes a long way to help, uh, Chalk Dinosaur just, just to be able to, um, you know, be participating in a show with, with a band like that. It certainly did with the Lotus sit-in. People still talk to me about that and, and remember that moment. And it seemed like it did a lot to, to help the visibility and kind of push Chalk Dinosaur um, ahead a little bit. So big thank you to Pigeons Playing Ping Pong for entrusting me with sitting in on, on one of your songs, um, on such a, such a special night. And, um, yeah. So we ran that song at soundcheck before the show. We, we did a little trial run and it went great. And, um, and then when we played it, you know, during the show, the first chord of the song of like the intro, I hit the wrong chord and it was, it wasn't like a complimentary wrong chord. It was, it was like a half step sharp kind of chord. So it, every single note in the chord was like the most highest level of dissonance. It, it, it confused the band. They're like, what the heck is, what's going on? Is my guitar out of tune? And, um, but no, it was, it was me. I played totally the wrong chord. Uh, but after that, I think it went great. But that first chord was the wrong chord. And um, so I'm sorry about that. Everyone's going to be able to hear that in high definition, I'm sure, on like nugs.net or YouTube or wherever they post the uh, recording from the show. Very, very wrong first chord by me. And so I'm sorry about that. But we're going to go with calling it an artistic choice and you know it was it was brief enough that people were probably like what the hell is going on and then it and then it was fine so hopefully it was okay but you know always a little disappointing to make a mistake in that like that noticeable of a mistake in that kind of situation but it was fine after that so overall I feel good about it but I do apologize for ruining the first chord of the song. Anyway, overall, it was it was just amazing to get to to jam with them, and jam we did. 
you know it, it's cool getting to play with these bands because i get to see how they structure their songs and how they perform their songs live so you know i i got familiar with the studio version which is the one that i was working on with them and then i get to see how they translate that live and it's somewhat similar to how we do it when we're playing with the ensemble we can't really we're a little more limited with the the duo it, everything has to be more structured but kind of the way that they structured the song or they translated it into their live show was they repeated a couple sections more than they did in the um in the album version so you know there was like an a section and a b section that got repeated in extra time uh went through another kind of cycle and then it kind of went into this jam section which when i listened to the album recording i kind of could tell like okay this middle section is go you know that this is like a jam section and so at the show it kind of just it's as long as we want it to be and we they let me jam for a bit and then i passed it off to jeremy and he jammed for a while and then the drummer kind of cues everybody to do this key change and he's such a good drummer and he makes it very very obvious to me when this change is coming so we're all just jamming in the same chords um the same riff for a while improvising and then the drummer really like really like telegraphs all right there's a change coming because he does this really you know very long build up ramp up and does a very long fill and so and then i look around and i can see people looking at me and nodding so i was like okay this is when it's gonna happen but it's just cool to see um how they orchestrate those those changes because it's kind of like that that jam section go for as long as we want but there needs to be some kind of signal to move to the next part of the song and then once you move to the next part of the song then the structure resumes and we play it the way it's written until the end so but it's just cool to see how they these uh seasoned bands they're so good at ramping ramping up and building up and like really um yeah just like building up to a change um it was really cool and it was it was awesome because like i had no question about what was going to happen at that time like i knew that this is when we're going to the d like the the d chord um i just could you know there were signals many 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 signals occurring in the sound and looking around at the other players um so that was cool um still a little bit a little bit scary to do that uh not having practice with them or not having that much time to learn the song uh, these sit-ins are always pretty much always very last minute and require uh, like <laughs> pretty much with every sit-in my initial reaction is no, like I don't want to do it because I, I don't feel like I have enough time to, to be prepared. But 
you know, if, if pigeons asks if I want to sit in or if Lotus asks if I want to sit in like that, it's like, I, I can't say no. Like I have to do this. Um, I need to do this. And then I, you know, it's, it's a good thing. It gets me out of my comfort zone. I, I have to really, I really have to prioritize what's important in the song. It's also, I've also learned for these sit-ins, you know, I, they're already playing these songs as good as they need to be played. I don't need to be playing all the time during the song. So, you know, it gave me comfort knowing like, if I ever get confused and I don't know what's going on, I'll just stop playing. And the song is still going to sound great because they've got, you know, their normal instrumentation and it's all, it's all there already. Um, so the sit-ins kind of like, if I need to take a step back and not play, I can do that. And then there's usually some type of section built into the song that's very simple and is designed for whoever is sitting in to get to express themselves. And that's what's happened in these types of sit-ins. So I've kind of gotten more comfortable with being not as prepared as I am used to being with the um, chalk dinosaur. It's funny too, because like I'm mixing our chalk dinosaur show from the Thunderbird. And I felt like I put in a lot of preparation for that show. And even still, like I, I messed up some of the most, some of the passages that I've played the most, I messed up. So I kind of, after I was listening to the recording the other day, I, I kind of, I think now, like, I'm, I mean, I, I kind of came to a realization, like, I probably would have played better during this section if I would have just improvised. Because for a lot of the guitar solos, I kind of almost, I don't really see them as solos, I see them as melodies, and I hear them as parts, like, melodic parts that are, I want to hear those melodies. So a lot of times I play the same thing during these solo sections and I still mess them up even though I've played them so many times and I think it might be time for me to let go of those parts and and just improvise during those types of sections because that's that's honestly the way they were designed to be played but I just became so attached with the melodies and and parts that I had like kind of composed I was kind of coming at it from more of a compositional mindset and it's one of those things like kind of like giving a speech or something you either have to have it in the back of your sleep back wait (laughs) be able to do it in your sleep like know it like the back of your hand like not have to think at all about it be so have it done it so many times that there's just no chance that you're gonna forget anything or you kind of wing it with some cues and that's kind of, I think, would, would work out better for me. You know, to come out, I, I would be able to... I just, I'm, I think I'm getting to that point now where I'm, I'm ready to let go of some of these melodies and lead parts that I composed and, and improvised during some of these sections that were designed to be that way. Because I'm honestly performing worse trying to play a composed part than I, than I do when I'm just uh, flowing. So anyway, cool experience, 
getting to sit in and thank you again for to pigeons for letting me uh, sit in with you guys so yeah i don't know what what else about the philly show oh yeah shout out to michael berger our bass player his brother's girlfriend who we've never met very kindly offered us uh, a place to stay uh, she had moved out of her apartment and it was vacant for a little bit, I think. And, um, she said we could stay there. So we didn't have to pay for a hotel. We got to stay in, you know, an apartment, which was really nice. And so thank you for, for that. But yeah, the show went really well and something else we were not expecting, which was like a really nice surprise. Um, was we got we got a crazy bonus from Live Nation. Live Nation, I guess there's some program that Willie Nelson was was independently funding through Live Nation called On the Road Again. And after the show, they just handed us $750 in gas cards uh, from that organization or that foundation or whatever it is it's supposed to just help touring musicians so thanks live nation and willie nelson for giving us that money and they also just gave us 750 dollars for just just a, a bonus um as a as a part of that program so that was a huge uh huge and very nice surprise it was I mean, really meant a lot because the gas, I mean, I think I, I was adding up the miles today, getting my tax stuff kind of uh, updated. And I think this year for the band, we drove uh, a little over 13,000 miles, which I don't know. I mean, like, it was a lot. It seemed like a lot. <laughs> I know uh, people who have a long commute to work or, you know, that daily commute really adds up and I work from home. So pretty much all those miles were from uh, concerts, driving to concerts. But anyway, the, the gas money, I mean, that that's going to be so helpful. And, and obviously just the extra cash is very helpful too. Um, but anyway, that was, that was a surprise. You know, you hear a lot of negative, uh, things about live nation and how, and I, I don't really know enough. I think it's, it makes it a lot harder for smaller venues and promoters, uh, to compete with. And I'm not exactly sure. I probably should know the ins and outs of this, uh, uh, of the live nation Ticketmaster stuff, but I don't, and the only thing I can comment on is that it was very nice to get that extra money to help us with our touring touring expenses. So thank you to them for and Willie Nelson for just giving us free money. So 
Yeah, Brooklyn Bowl Philly was sweet. The weekend before that, we played two shows in Illinois with a band called Squeaky Feet, which we, well, I'll speak for myself here. I had not heard of them before this year, and then I started seeing their name, and we got booked with them, and we listened to their album, and uh, they're really good. They're... um, their style hopping is is really uh, really cool, pretty unique, and their skills are very high. Uh, they're all Berkeley. Well, I'm not sure if all of them are, but that's where they formed. At least most of the members formed through Berkeley School of Music. Which anytime I see that, uh, I just automatically know they're going to be like prodigies on their instruments and that they were especially the guitar player he's he's just uh the guitar just an extension of his brain and his his body it's like one of those types of musicians where there is no barrier between him and his instrument and his brain it just all flows out at least that's the way it it seems oops just kicked something but anyway squeaky feet they were really good we really enjoyed their set their sets because we played with them two nights in a row we really enjoyed their sets and their album and we really enjoyed them as people as well they were really nice to talk to and hang out with and it's always nice whenever you meet and connect with other musicians um you like their music there's there's a really nice uh, camaraderie there. Um, and it seemed like they they really um, genuinely appreciated what we were doing as well, which that kind of mutual appreciation, it's just, it feels nice. It really does because they're really good. So it felt really nice that they, uh, they were into what we were doing as well. But yeah, the, the show in Chicago was at a place called Bourbon on Division. It's in a nice neighborhood. Um, the houses, they looked so Chicago-y. It was cool. Uh, I guess, yeah, it was like an upstairs venue. So took our gear into an elevator, took it upstairs to the stage. Weirdly, they didn't have bourbon there, but um, there was a great turnout for that show which we were not sure what to expect in Chicago because we played there one time before in 2020 with a band called Chichuba. And I think they are from the area or, or the region at least. So we went in there, you know, not totally coming from out of nowhere because we were, we were teamed up with a band that had a bit of a local presence and that show turned out good. Um, that was three years ago. And we we didn't really have any information or insight onto, you know, how Squeaky Feet was doing live, what they were all about. And also, like, how we would do in Chicago. Based on our Spotify listeners, Chicago is one, one of our biggest cities in terms of the number of listeners 
and we were we were unsure if that would translate to actual people at the show. And I, I still don't really know for sure because we were playing with another band. They were uh, Squeaky Feet's from Denver, but they you know they've been working as well, trying to grow their following and have been playing a lot. So it's hard to say uh, how many people were there for who. But what we can say for sure is that there was, you know, a very healthy amount of people in the room for the whole night, which was awesome because sometimes, you know, you've got a good turnout and then people, people leave um, and whoever's playing second, you know, they, they don't get, they don't get the crowd that the uh, first band got or vice versa. The, the crowd uh, doesn't show up until, you know, first band's over. But this this was a good show. People were there for the whole time. They were having a good time, and they were very nice. There's something. I, this has only happened in Illinois, but people just giving money to us uh, in the form of like tips, kind of like I. Somebody uh, just gave me some money and said thank you, great job, and I was uh, I was confused, a little suspicious, uh, uh, grateful obviously, but you know, in disbelief that someone would just hand me, hand me money, um, you know, having already bought a ticket and, you know, I tried to offer them some merchandise in return and they just, they just wanted to give us the money. So that was really nice. And then in Peoria where we went the second night, uh, I always take my shoes off when I play so that I can operate my foot pedals more, uh, with more dexterity. It's actually really important that I can like feel the feel the knobs and feel the buttons with my feet cuz I I do a fair amount of footwork when I'm playing with the looper and the effects and stuff. But anyway, my shoes were on the stage and people were stuffing money in my shoes. It was like uh <laughs> turned into like a tip jar. Smelly tip jar. So thank you to everyone who's so nice out in Illinois and gave us uh gave us tips like that who bought merch who just came out and listened to us play so yeah bourbon on division that was that was great we had a good time in chicago we stayed at a best western on the way to peoria we, we drove a little bit little ways away headed towards our next destination and then stopped and uh yeah the best western in chicago land it was nice. I liked it. I am still at a point where I really enjoy hotel rooms. Hopefully that doesn't fade. I just like having a hotel room. It's nice. Um, so yeah, so then the next day we played in Peoria, which is a city that I've, I've never been to. It's somewhere, it's not too far from summer camp, the music festival that we played last May. One of the, you know, legendary old uh, Godfather music festivals of jam. So we were, you know, unsure how we would do in Peoria. We didn't know anything about the city. Um, but apparently there was a good a good market there for music. And we thought, well, maybe... Maybe our appearance at summer camp might 
might help us a little bit with this play and maybe some people will have seen us that are in the vicinity. We played at a place called Kenny's West Side Pub, which was cool. Actually on the, yeah, on the drive, um, you know, we were talking about pubs and Nick was talking about how pubs are like his favorite, uh, type of bar and uh, his dream vacation would be to go pub hopping in England or or Ireland or, you know, th- th- going pub hopping. I think that was just it, wherever. Um, but anyway, so this was a pub, but it was also a nice music venue. Um, so it was kind of split into two sides. They had the stage area, which also had a bar. And the stage area was great. They had great lights, great sound. And they had cameras um, set up, multiple cameras pointed at the stage, around the stage, and they actually live stream the shows and they record them. And, um, but yeah, it was great. And then to get into that stage area and out of the stage area, they have these big barn doors that they, they keep closed during normal non-show hours and then they open them up for the show and then it kind of becomes like this big l-shaped thing one giant room um but yeah kenny's was was really great you could tell you could really tell that the ownership uh, and staff and everything at kenny's it was they made it a point to treat the artists well and to make that a priority just with with everything um whatever we wanted food or drinks it was all on the house and the communication was good the staff was really good it was all very uh you could tell they valued the music and wanted to treat the musicians well so i really appreciated that and um Turnout wasn't as good as in Chicago. Um, it was kind of more of a spread out kind of crowd. A lot of people just, oh, sorry, I got to adjust my mic. When we started our set, there was a, a decent crowd. Um, so we were excited. We were, we were like, yes, this is great. It's, we're just starting and there's, you know, a nice group of people. Cause usually the crowd grows throughout the show but um as our set went on people were leaving a lot of people left um so that kind of like i didn't know what to make of that 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 felt weird um that usually doesn't happen and that felt a little bit i was kind of messing with my head during the show um like you know i guess people don't like it kind of thing or we're not we're not good enough or something. Uh, we're driving away the crowd, um, that kind of stuff. Um, but after talking with the staff a little bit, they kind of said that the crowd is kind of transient and flowing because of the nature of the area. Uh, people people do a lot of bar hopping. 
they come in for a drink and then they leave and go to, there was various other like clubs and other stuff around. And I guess it was a lot of, uh, I guess it's a college town. So there's, there's a lot of college aged people. And I guess at least the way they made it sound was that, you know, big group of them will come in, they'll get a drink or two and then they'll go on to the next place. So whether or not that was, you know, what happened, it made me feel a little bit better. Um, so attendance was a little bit light in Peoria. Um, wasn't the best, but I mean, the experience as, as a performer there, aside from that was really good. There was enough people there that were, you know, it was, it felt, you know, it didn't feel like a waste or anything. Um, and the people that were there were very nice very supportive and and were open to what we were doing and you know talked to a lot of very encouraging people um so overall felt felt good i'm always so much fresher on the first night of those things i can only imagine if you're doing like four nights in a row or something um like, I, I feel like I played much better in Chicago and I was in a better mental state, like a better headspace in Chicago. And in, in Peoria, I was probably because I didn't, I didn't sleep that well the night before and was a little tired, but, you know, a little more kind of just not playing that well and then kind of thinking about any just like being two in my head while I'm playing and then that in turn causing me to not play as well. But um, they both went over pretty well. The Chicago show is better on my end, at least for my performance. Had a good rock and roll moment. At least in my head, it was a rock and roll moment because I, I popped a string at the end of one song, popped a string and then we were going into East Wind and I like I queued up that song and there's like eh, there's like a minute or so of like intro kind of atmospheric uh, or, or like um yeah uh atmospheric what's what's the word here? Um just like set up for the song. Um, so I had like a very short amount of time. I had a, my high E string popped and I was thinking, hmm, should I just play the rest of the set without that string? And then I was thinking about some of the parts, some of the melodies and some of the lead guitar parts that were left for me to play in the set. And I really need that E string. So my guitar case was actually on stage, which was really, I guess I was really lucky, but I knew I had a pack of strings in my guitar case. So during that like 60 second kind of transition, I was able to get the strings out, open the package and put a new E string on. And then I missed a little bit of the beginning of the song, but it wasn't crucial that I was playing at the, the very beginning of the song. But whenever like some of like the main melodies and stuff came in. I was back, back online and I was able to play the rest of the show. And the mid song string change was, 
I, a moment I was proud of myself for that. So I just, this is me patting myself on the back. Good job. Kept the show going. And then there's always something like that that happens. It's funny. I usually change my strings before every show, you know, or, or if there's two shows, I'll change them before the first, you know, I won't change it for every show. If there's like two in a weekend, I'll just change them before the weekend. But I think I had only played one show on these strings. So I was like, there's, I'm going to risk it and not change it for uh, Peoria or for Chicago. And then it popped in Chicago figures. Um, so yeah, but something like that happens a lot. Like I think Nick was having some issues with his hi-hat clutch. It was slipping like the little, the little thing on the, the hi-hat symbols that are to the left of the drummer that open and close, like the thing that makes it open and close was, was messed up. So he was having to fiddle with that in the middle of the songs at times whenever he had a little break. And then in, in Philadelphia, the, the beater out of his kick drum pedal fell out, which is, you know, that's the thing that strikes the drum. You push the pedal down and then it moves the beater to strike the drum head to make the kick drum sound. And that fell out uh, at the end of Bounce House. I thought there was like a... <laughs> so I, I heard the kick drum drop out and I thought it was like a front of house thing or like an electronic, you know, bad cable or something. But then I I saw... <laughs> <laughs> I looked over and I saw what was going on and the beater had fallen out of the kick drum pedal. So, but luckily there was only a couple bars left in that song. So we just finished the song with no kick drum and then there was a little break and he was able to get the beater back in in time for the next song. Took that opportunity to speak to the crowd a little bit and thank them for being there. It worked out. Yeah, there's there's always stuff like that that happens. Fortunately, none of it has been catastrophic ever. Which is, you know, that's that's the real worry, especially because we're we're very reliant on certain pieces of technology for our two-person set. Um very reliant on the Octatrack sampler, which is that piece of equipment that is to the left of me on stage always that's what kind of controls the whole show i have a spare one but i never bring it into the venue with me i need to start bringing it into the venue because i always have the spare but it's always out in the car i guess my reasoning is that if the octatrack goes down you know i'm assuming i'm going to figure that out at sound check and then if I need to get the spare, I'll get the spare. But I've never thought about, like, what if it breaks in the middle of a set or something? That would be a nightmare. I mean, calling it a nightmare makes it sound worse than it really is. You know, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody's getting injured. Just our, just our pride and our... Um, it would just be embarrassing, humiliating for a serious technical difficulty like that. Have to stop the show and figure it out. It would be stressful, embarrassing, but overall not 
a catastrophe in um, a real-world sense. Now, I guess the more money you're getting paid, the more it seems like it would, you know, the more kind of pressure there is for things to go right. You know, if you're not really getting paid anything, nobody knows who you are, and things go really wrong, uh, you know, who cares? But I could imagine if you were goose or a pop star and you're getting paid a hundred thousand dollars for one performance uh you can't really you know you've got to make sure that you know the contingencies are planned for and you're you know nothing like that's going to totally derail a show i remember it we were talking to somebody who was a drum tech for, I forget who he's a drum tech for, but he was talking to us, we were just talking about drum tuning and drum heads and stuff like that. And he was saying on those big tours, like a big stadium tour or something, they change the drum heads every night, which is insane. We, we change our drum heads like once a year. Maybe should change them more, but... I mean, probably it's once a year. Um, oh, which reminds me, Nick bought a new drum set. He bought a Yamaha Stage Custom, which is just a type of drum set. And he played a Yamaha on Stuck in Between at the Vault, and he really liked that kit. And um, so he got one. This is the first new drum set of his life. First instrument he's bought, you know, first drum set he's bought. He's bought a few guitars and stuff, but this is the first drum set that he's chosen, picked out, and purchased, and now owns. The drum set we have been using is my brother Joe's from when he was in high school. And it's funny, I was looking through my old hard drives today, doing a little digital housekeeping, just looking through all these old photos and videos, and that red drum set that we have been playing out at shows and stuff, it's in all of them. It's before, like, me and Nick even had gone through puberty, like, that drum set was in our videos, that red drum set. So it's pretty hilarious that we're still playing that at shows. But now we got a new drum set, and kind of the... The allure was to have a road drum set and a studio drum set so that we could keep a drum set set up in the studio. We don't have to tear everything down and then set it back up again after every show. So that could provide a little more consistency and continuity in, at least in my life, uh, having a recording studio at home just not having to tear it apart and put it back together again so so many times another reason was that we just kind of had started to grow a little bit unsatisfied with the sound of our drum set which was it was like a 90s pearl export that's all i know about it 22 inch kick 
three toms, 10, 12, and 14. And, um, yeah, the kick, it, a lot of it was the kick We I, and the toms. Like, we we were just kind of struggling to get it to sound good the way we wanted. We just felt like the drums could sound better. Um, and we know a lot of it's in the way you tune them. And we're both kind of very just trial and error tuning a lot of the time really uh, it's been a kind of a mystery um just keep messing around until you get it to sound good kind of approach and i mean it's it's gotten a little more you know i have a little bit more of a handle on it now than i used to but still it's i it's uh always a bit of a struggle to get them to sound the way that I want. If I'm tuning them and I'm, I'm sure Nick would say the same, it's a little bit of a struggle to get them to sound right. Um, so we thought maybe a different set of drum shells, which that's what they call the, the, you know, the drums, all the things that aren't cymbals and hardware, the, the shells, we thought maybe we could make them sound good a little easier uh, they would be easier to tune. And whenever the drum set arrived and we set it up and did quick tuning, uh, it sounded great. So I think what we were hoping would happen did happen, and they just sound better easier. It's easier to make them sound good. Um, it's kind of the same thing I like about certain keyboards, certain vintage synthesizers or any synthesizers there's certain ones that just sound good it, it's easier to produce a good sound out of them and then there are other ones that sure you could get them to sound good and some people are really good with them but you have to kind of explore and work a little more to get a usable good sound out of it it's kind of like with software synthesizers uh, you know, digital on your computer. They're so insanely powerful and there's so many options to create a sound, but it's a little harder to find, to, to actually like craft a, a sound that you like and to get it to sound really good. And then there are certain instruments like this old Yamaha synthesizer I just bought from 1977, the CS10, Every sound on that is good, um, pretty much. Like, it's really easy to create a really good sound. It's basic. The sounds are basic, but they're very good, um, which is nice. I kind of, with most of my gear, I, I tend to do better and connect better with the one-trick pony kind of th pieces of gear, like this Moog Minitar on my desk. It's a, it's a Moog synthesizer just for bass. So it doesn't even do higher octaves. It's just for bass. It's very simple, but it just sounds great. And even just the most simple sounds on it sound really nice, very present, very rich, very big. So that's a good example of like a one-trick pony piece of equipment. The, the Moog Minotaur, it's so good at what it does, but it doesn't do a lot of different things. Same thing with that Yamaha keyboard I just bought, the CS10, which is a synthesizer from 1977 it doesn't 
it actually is pretty versatile, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty simple and, but, but the sound, the raw sound of it is just really good. So it's very easy to get a usable sound. Kind of like the Moog Little Fatty, which is the first synthesizer that I ever bought. I used it live for a long time. I just recently retired it this year from the live set. Um, this one is one of the ones that like it can do. It's still somewhat simple. It can do a decent amount of things, but like this one, for some reason, the raw sound isn't, I don't know. There's something about it that I, I don't like sometimes, but if you kind of spend a little more time with the filter and like the controls, you can get it to sound really nice, but it's not one of those synthesizers where no matter where you set it, it sounds great. And there are, you know, that Yamaha is kind of like that, like no matter what settings you have, it, you know, it's hard to get a bad sound out of it. For the Moog Little Fatty, you can definitely get some bad sounds out of it. Just kind of plasticky, really obnoxious sounds. Um, but you can get some really beautiful and awesome sounds, but it it's one of the ones that it takes a little more work, a little more of a deep dive to find the sweet spot. Um, and the keyboard that I replaced the Little Fatty with is called a deep mind it's a couple years it's from a couple years the, the the past couple years it came out it was, it was a low cost analog polyphonic synthesizer polyphonic mean means you can play more than one note at a time which with a lot of synthesizers they're monophonic which means you can only play one note at a time which sounds crazy if you're used to, you know, thinking about a keyboard as a piano or something where you can play as many notes as you want. Monophonic synthesizer can only play one note at a time. But those notes are very, you know, shapeable, sculptable. You can do a, a lot with that. And the restriction that that creates is actually stimulating uh, in terms of creativity. But anyway, that's why monophonic synths are often used for bass and leads, things that only have one, you know. It's like a flute. You can only play one note at a time, or like a bassoon. Only one note at a time, but it's a, it's a very high-value note. But anyway, the Deep Mind, that's another one of those ones that's like, it's a modern synth. You can make amazing sounds with it, but you have to work a little harder for it. You have to look a little deeper because, you know, off the bat, it can sound a little plasticky and like not really that good. But once you explore a little bit with the filters and the envelopes and find these sweet spots and, and especially the effects that there's such a powerful synthesizer in terms of, the effects, the way you can like route modulation and, and do all this different stuff, you get some amazing sounds, but it's one of those ones where you got to get under the hood a little bit more and you've got to experiment a little more to find the sweet spots of the instrument. 
And it seems like all these instruments have sweet spots, and some instruments have bigger sweet spots, and it's easier to find. The Prophet, I remember the Prophet was even a little bit like that. Like, um, I was coming from a, the keyboard I had prior to the Prophet, which is my main polyphonic synthesizer, Prophet. Before that, before I had the Prophet, I had what, a Roland Juno 60, which is from 1982. And that was one of those instruments that just, you couldn't get a bad sound out of it. Everything sounded great. And you didn't have to work hard at all to get a great sound. The only downside was it was, you know, somewhat limited. It was a, it was a simple instrument. Everything sounded great. You know, it's like a Rhodes piano or an acoustic piano. It's just, it sounds great. You can't do a whole lot to the tone of it. Kind of is what it is. And I might be selling the Juno short. You can get a whole lot of different sounds out of it, but compared to the modern synthesizers, it's very simple and limited. But sounded amazing. So I had that, and I sold it to Jesse Miller of Lotus so that I could get a modern synthesizer the profit and I wanted to make that switch because I was playing out live a lot I was not feeling too confident in depending on a piece of equipment like of that age and uh, you know um, I didn't know how to get it serviced I didn't know how to do it myself. I actually did some of the service myself. I changed the internal battery. That's about it. But anyway, for some reason, I was just ready to move on. And another reason I was ready to move on is because I used that synthesizer so much in so much of my music. Everything I made had Juno in it for a few years. And I feel like I kind of just, I tapped out that that sound the juno sound and i was ready i was just feeling like i need to find some other sounds to you know i i kind of want something that can do some other different things to maybe change it up so that's why i got the profit and when i first got it it it's not like the juno in that you can't just do any setting and it sounds great uh you you had to kind of search a little deeper to find the sweet spots. So, you know, the sweet spot of the instrument was a little more narrow and, but it had, it has many different sweet spots and many different sounds that I couldn't do with the Juno, but it's not one of those ones where it just automatically sounds good no matter what you do, which the Juno was like that. So the longer I've had the profit and the more time I spend with it in any given session, like the, the better I can the more I like it and like the more things I discover about it. It's such a deep instrument. I'm, I feel like I'm still, I'm still not using it to its full potential. There's still so much left for me to discover with that instrument. Um, and it just, uh, yeah, it takes time, you know, time just sitting down and experimenting with it. And sadly I do not do that that much. I don't have, I don't know. I can't say I don't have time. That's just, that's a, not a good excuse. Um, I haven't made time. We'll put it that way. 
to explore. But, you know, if, if I have a project, anytime I've had a project and really put my focus on the profit and like shaping a sound with it, it's always, you know, surprised me and pleased me. Oh boy, I don't know how I got off in this long gear talk. I was talking about the shows in Chicago and Peoria. Uh, oh man, so many other shows too. I, I don't know if I want to go through every single show right now, but I will say the Pittsburgh show was great. That was Black Friday, which I love playing on Black Friday because there's so many people in town visiting family and stuff. People that wouldn't normally be here are here and Thanksgiving is over and they're still here. So they, you know, get to see a whole bunch of people. I, I feel like it's really good for attendance. And uh, we played this time with Disgo, who we've been playing a lot with this year. And it was, it was great. Because they, they did really well in Pittsburgh before, and we also did really well in Pittsburgh um, independently of each other. So playing together with this show, it was, a, it was a great turnout. And we went a little extra step and hired Matt Miller to do lights and visuals for the show. Which, that was kind of our only complaint about Thunderbird, was they didn't have... The lighting was just basic, just like lights. There was no, they didn't have any movers or like, you couldn't make like dramatic lighting with it. Um, so we hired our friend who did lights at Garefest and also does lights, helps with lights at Farm Jamalama to do lights. And he did a great job. He He really went above and beyond in terms of he actually, you know, learned our set. He was programming lighting patches, like lighting programs for the specific songs. He was doing that beforehand. Um, you know, I sent him a playlist of our, our set list, the songs we were going to play, and he, he said he was listening to that on repeat and really putting a lot of thought and effort into what are the lights going to do during this song? What color are they going to be? Um, then he had like this balloon drop orchestrated during stuck in between, which was turned out to be very cool. I was, uh, I was curious how that would turn out and it was actually a very cool moment. But yeah, the Thunderbird show, it was great. The crowd was so enthusiastic and I feel like uh, the past couple of shows in Pittsburgh, uh, I've really felt the love from the um, from the people that come to the show. It's really awesome to have all that support here. I mean, Chalk Dinosaur, we've been active in one form or another since 2008. Uh, and in this current form, you know, the more jam band format you know five years we've been active six years seven years uh, i don't know eight years <laughs> it's kind of hard to differentiate but um yeah just to have that kind of support is really cool 
because it's it's definitely better than it's ever been and it really feels like people appreciate what we're doing and that people really support and encourage us and want to see us succeed and it's a it's really nice feeling every time we play in pittsburgh it's such a awesome show and i i hope it continues that way you know i don't want to take it for granted that it's just like that now but you know i think what we've been doing has been working in terms of not overplaying so we only play pittsburgh twice a year maybe two or three times a year and that has really helped obviously we we couldn't do that in the beginning and i couldn't do that in the beginning whenever i was no matter what the you know in the early first edition of the band back in 2008 to 2010 we were playing um totally different band by the way but we were playing every you know every show opportunity we could get and basically our strategy was similar to what we are still doing like just trying to play shows with the bands that we like but also doing we we did a few shows that were kind of just our own showcase shows where we played two sets or something and those were actually really cool uh that would be that would be cool to do it's a little more complicated now with the now that we're working with booking agency and management there's a whole strategy and everything but the um you know i think and then like whenever we or whenever i started playing solo in 2015 again after it took a couple years off started playing again in 2015 solo i was doing a similar thing where i was just playing every show that i could get and now it's great to be at a point where we can play twice a year really build up those two shows and have really high impact shows instead of kind of watering down our performances in by doing too many of them in Pittsburgh. It feels like they all count a lot more. They have more impact, which is great. I remember Paul Garino, owner of Ascend, once talking to me about the concept of, you know, not wanting to fatigue your audience. And I guess I hadn't thought about that in those terms, but um, something I've definitely thought about ever since and this way has just been uh really nice um i think it's probably was very necessary and important earlier on when we're building our repertoire and kind of building an audience to play more frequently in pittsburgh but it's definitely been working out better to play less frequently and i mean we've been playing more than we've ever played this year but we've been playing in new cities so we're still playing not too many times in the same place to kind of keep it fresh but still playing a lot to kind of keep our chops fresh our musicianship and our you know keep working on our skills uh, as performers But yeah, 2023, it's been a the biggest year ever. Biggest Spotify listeners, biggest amount of shows, most amount of places played. Got to play with some of our favorite artists. Um, it's been great. And there's definitely been 
a handful of challenges. I, I forgot to even mention when we were driving from Chicago to Peoria, our car top carrier uh, opened on the highway. The uh, the latch failed, and it was a really windy day, and the latch broke, and uh, the top like ripped up, ripped off. It it didn't rip off the hinges, but it ripped open, and it was all kind of like cracked and broken up, and a bunch of our merch flew out uh, from the car top carrier. Which thank God nobody was driving behind us, because we were going. You know, we were on the highway. And our shirts start flying out of the top and uh, the posters and just the bins flying out of the roof of our car. Um, So, yeah, thank God nobody was behind us because that could have caused a serious accident. And that would have really complicated things and potentially, you know, just one of those situations where, you know, if if that caused an accident and somebody got hurt, that would be just... One, a huge tragedy if if that were to have caused some type of accident um, or someone were to have gotten hurt. And then two, it would have been, you know, that would have been a huge weight to live with on my conscience if that were to have uh, caused somebody to get hurt. And three, uh, you know, the legal implications of, you know, they they could uh, hold hold me responsible for for causing an accident. I don't know. I don't know if you can get like a, a manslaughter charge for that or something. If if someone were to have died because of something flew off of our vehicle, I don't know. It could have been real bad, but it was, it turned out fine. We were able to get all the shirts back. We just like, <laughs> they were blown around and we just ran across the highway and then uh, picked up all the shirts and koozies and stickers and stuff that we could find. And I think we got most of them. The only thing we lost was the posters. We never found that. That that blew away or I didn't see where that went and um everything else though we got we got back, which is good. So, we're down a car top carrier, which is kind of essential for our extremely compact uh touring setup with just the the RAV4. We kind of need that overhead space for merch. Um, but for the past couple shows, Alyssa has been doing merch for us. So she's been driving separate and carrying, um, you know, our merch inventory, which has been really helpful. So thank you for helping us with that, Alyssa. Um, and I think the next car top carrier we get, we get, even though them toolies, uh, they seem to be the nicest. They're like... 800 to 1000 bucks and also that is what I had and it it flew open on the highway so um we're going to get a different one that opens from the rear because if you're driving on the highway it's not going to fly open because it is opening from the rear and the wind will push it down blah 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 so and it actually, I found one that it's half the price. It actually has more cubic feet of volume and it opens from the back. So we don't have to worry as much about it flying open when we're driving. Um, and yeah, got some new roof, roof rack 
crossbars specifically fit for my car because before I was using some roof rack crossbars that were meant for a sedan just to go on on the bare roof of a sedan and they happened to work with the roof rails that I had on my car but it was it was a little little not ideal they they were very high you know whatever cargo I put on top of there was very high off the top of the car and it just wasn't made for that car so We'll get that going for 2024. And, um, yeah. But, yeah, there there were some tough shows. Detroit was tough. There was, you know, just just the couple people that we know. Some of Nick's friends in Detroit, like six of them were, were there. And uh, that was that was pretty painful to, to, to do that show. And then... The Urbana show was literally nobody came. So that was, I mean, that was like a nine hour drive and then there was no one there. So that was uh, not a good feeling. Um, But then we also had this past weekend, which was a sold out show in Philadelphia with pigeons playing ping pong. And that felt awesome. And, um, you know, summer sequence, the Papadozio festival in Asheville, that was awesome. Um, there was, there was a lot of great, great shows. And then, you know, a lot of driving and a lot of, uh, road travel, which pretty exhausting and, and hard to get into a good rhythm in any sense when, when we're doing that, cause we're, we're driving, we're playing, then we come home, it takes me like a couple of days to like recover from that and get my studio set up again and get caught up on whatever I missed when I was out and then get back into like a creative mindset and then, you know, tear it all down in the studio, pack it up and go out and do it again. That's, that's been an adjustment that I'm still navigating how to, how to do that. But I could see like whenever we did the Vermont shows, I could feel there was there was a bit of a rhythm in that that I I could appreciate where we had several shows in a short amount of time. So all we had to do was play the show, you know, pack up the car, go to a hotel, go to sleep, wake up and go to the next location and set up and do it again. Like it was it was very simple in that regard. And that's all you had to do. That's all you had to focus on. And there was something that was nice about that. Um, So, uh, you know, it's going to be a trial and error, I think, to kind of find the right balance between uh, the performance side of things and the artistry side of things. Because so far, it's very hard for me to... uh, My mind can't operate in both at the same time in terms of you know, the artistry side of things where I'm in my studio, I'm exploring sound, I'm writing songs, I'm recording things, I'm just creating things. And then the performance side of things where, you know, we're taking these trips and we're going out and performing to crowds. They're totally, it's like left brain, right brain, and they don't operate at the same time. I I, takes uh, all of my attention on one of, you know, either one of those things. So 
finding the right balance for me is going to be key in terms of sustainability. How, how long can I sustain doing this? And I mean, the goal is to find a balance that is indefinitely sustainable and that's going to provide the most results and, you know, long-term growth, whatever we can keep doing the longest, um, and maintain our mental health, physical health, relationship health. That's, that's the goal for me and probably for everyone. Um, just sustainability and consistency, um, because I, I feel like I've heard this saying a lot in f- the fitness world, in uh, weightlifting and bodybuilding. The most successful program is the one that you stick to. So it doesn't necessarily matter if it's the perfect program, but whatever you're able to sustain and continue doing and enjoy doing is the one that's going to have the most success. So just one of the uh, parallels between the, the whole fitness world and the art world that I've kind of noticed. I'm going to do an episode on that because I I feel like there's, they're very intertwined in my mind. Um, Not in general, but like for me personally, they are, I see a lot of similarities and a lot of parallels, but um, yeah. Oh yeah. Also I got, got married this year to Alyssa. So that was awesome. It was really a great time. And then went to Mexico, did an all-inclusive resort honeymoon and just relaxed for, for a week. And that was amazing. And <laughs> it's been awesome. And I, I'm going to end this episode now because we're looking for a house to buy. So... We're about to go leave and look at some houses that we could potentially be interested in buying. Um, that will be the next step. And then, you know, once once we've bought a house, then I can I, I look forward to really being able to set up a studio space for keeps, you know, like all these studios I've set up since I've been recording, they've all been temporary, you know, studios things. I know I'm going to be moving out. I can't put in too much stuff. I can't alter the room that much. Everything has to be kind of removable and temporary, but you know, if we get a place, um, that we've purchased, then I can go ham and, you know, put whatever I want on the walls and put as many holes in the ceiling as I need to without thinking about, oh, I'm going to have to fill all these in before I move. So anyway, thank you for listening. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff I missed, but thanks to everyone who came out and saw us over the this fall and winter at our shows. Thanks to everyone who listened on Spotify and made this the biggest year ever in terms of monthly listeners. Um, and thanks to uh, the band, Nick, John Henderson, Michael Berger for putting in the time and effort to make these shows awesome. And I should have some video and live concert footage and, and recording, audio recording. I should, 
I'm trying to get caught up on that, but I should have some of that stuff out pretty soon. And thanks to Rob and Sam, manager and booking agent, for getting us in front of so many people this year and helping us get paid a an amount that actually, you know, is able to sustain us doing this right now. Um, in terms of covering our expenses with, with touring. So thank you all and hope you all have a good holiday. And I will leave you with this old recording I found today when I got lost and I was going through an old hard drive and I found this old recording. And um, I used to do this thing where I would record a stream of consciousness on a microphone where I would just hit record. This is like when I first discovered recording and it was so amusing and interesting to me um, just to like record something and then listen to it. So I used to do this thing where I just hit record and then I'd do a stream of consciousness and I, I would call it rambling and I would just like just hit record and then just like sit, try to like keep talking and just make up stupid stories and stuff. So this is one of those that I found from a very long time ago. When I listen to this, I can tell very clearly that I'm just looking around the room at different objects and just rambling about those things and trying to make those into something. And I must have been watching something that had a character that had a, a southern accent because uh, during this time period, I I was big on the southern accent, and Boomhauer from King of the Hill was kind of a early influence. So it's kind of like a more articulate Boomhauer kind of character, and I think I was probably ten to twelve years old when I did this, somewhere in there. But anyway, I spent a long time just like digging through these old recordings and there's there's a lot of funny ones, a lot of really stupid stuff. And it's also cool to see, um, you know, back in these times when I first discovered Sound Recorder on our Windows computer or it might have even been, yeah, no, it was Windows. You know, I was very interested and very drawn to recording um and got a lot of enjoyment and entertainment out of recording things and listening to them and putting effects on them um reversing them speeding them up slowing them down that was a lot of entertainment for me when i was younger and it still is so kind of some foreshadowing in the early days, once I discovered how to record uh, on a computer, and pretty soon after that, started messing around with music programs like Fruity Loops and Acid, which were music production programs that we ended up with, thanks to my older brother Joe, who illegally downloaded them back in 1998 or whenever this was. But yes, when I look back, a lot of foreshadowing. Really uh, enjoyed doing characters and recording sound. So not a lot has changed in that regard.
Anyway, here it is. It's pretty bad. It's kind of cringy, but also kind of funny to hear what was going through my head at this age. Oh well, about my toenail, nothing. <laughs> Back to the show. Now, today, we have a storyteller with us. His name is Bob McFarley. Bob, would you please say hi to the to the kids? Hi guys, my name is Bob McFarley. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm a little too close to the microphone. My first time in front of the microphone, I'm sorry. Hi, my name is Bob McFarley, and I am a professional storyteller. Now, today we have a great story for you. It's about, um, well, who cares what it's about? It's called, just give it a clip. That's right, just give it a clip. Now, I'm going to tell you this story in about five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Well, that wasn't five seconds, but I said it's five seconds. Oh, well, let's go. Now, once upon a time, now there was a nice stack of CDs. And on that CD, there was some meatloaf. And inside the meatloaf, a little man came out and said, How you doing, guy? And then that guy went back into his little meatloaf home, and then the meatloaf bounced away. Also, there was some other things that I did not tell you about through the course of that story. Like, uh, one time this television set. Uh, well, you see, <laughs> some folks tried to plug it in, but they bent the plug. And then the plug grew eyes in the mouth and started spitting electricity at them and said... Boy, you bend me one more time, I'm gonna kick your tuna fish. That's what I got in my fridge. That's what I got in my stomach. That's what's gonna be in the toilet tomorrow night. Now, also, files. Who likes files anyway? I love file cabinets, and you love, um, let's see here, uh, speakers. Uh, speakers. Now, sound come out of speakers, and the jello jiggler, and the turkey wing, you know what I'm saying, and the dumpster. And you know, when you go outside, you just like the chair. Goodbye. I hope you all like that story, because I'm done now, and <laughs> that story can never be repeated.